Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you guys look very, a lot of you look very festive. I've already gotten the question, where's your ugly Christmas sweater? It's not ugly, it's Christmas sweater Sunday, and I've got to take myself seriously enough to, to preach this morning, and if I wear my ugly Christmas sweater, I just, I just can't do it, right? I don't want to be a giant distraction to you all. Um, so this uh, past month, we've been looking at different sort of uh, festive songs that kind of get us into the spirit, right? And kind of like these songs launching us into kind of what is the story of Christmas and how do we engage it? What does it mean to our lives today and how do we live this out? Um, we've had a lot of different types of songs, multiple from the 80s uh, already. Uh, and today's song, though, has a little bit more of a history to it. Uh, and in fact, sometimes you might have even heard it uh, uh, performed even at maybe like a, a Christmas choir concert or something like that um, at a church or something like that. So uh, the, the origins of this Christmas song, you know, go all the way back to the early 1900s. Uh, it was written, originally written uh, based off of a Ukrainian folklore, folk tale. And the story goes like this, that there's a man or a family uh, that had a particularly hard year or a particularly hard season of their life and that they were looking for hope. Uh, life was hard, and uh, so they were looking for some good news. And so the swallow comes and kind of declares to this family or to this man, we're not really sure, uh, because there's not a whole lot of words actually in the song itself. Um, hey, there's good news coming. You know, the, the grain fields that have been emptied, hey, they're going to be bountiful. Uh, the, uh, you know, you're lonely, you're going to get that, that wife of your dreams, she's coming along. Um, you know, all the money that you want, it's going to be in hand, uh, and it's imminent, it's, it's happening. Like you, this good news is assured, take it to the bank, like it's coming right, right around the corner. Uh, the song originally was written actually not as a Christmas song, and maybe not even as a New Year's Day song, but a breaking of winter into spring song. Because as uh, in Ukraine, as you can imagine, you know, after a, a harsh winter, the hope of spring to come was something that was very much pressed on people's hearts and on their minds. But the American rendition that we're going to listen to right now in its entirety for a reason, I want you to listen. It's 90 seconds, okay? Listen to it in its entirety. We're going to talk about both the tone of the song and briefly about the lyrics. We'll kind of get into the scripture and what does it mean. So take a listen. Thank you. 
Um, the lyrics are not much. The lyrics are simple. There's four notes that are repeated over and over and over again. And yet, emotionally, that song drives something inside of you. It's odd because some would describe uh, maybe even the, the sound of the music as haunting. And yet the words are words of imminent hope. Not imminent doom, but imminent hope. Uh, I think of uh, Home Alone when I hear this song. And I think of Kevin, you know, uh, Kevin McAllister sitting in that church, right, with that creepy old dude. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, like, I think the bell strikes eight, the song plays, and then there's sort of like what Kevin has to leave to go, like, protect his home from, like, the robbers, the bandits that are surely coming, right? Eminent danger. But in the lyrics, it's eminent hope. Like, there's good things turning. But that's the thing. A lot of Christmas for us in regards to song and stuff is merriment and joy as if it's just sort of like all sugar gumdrops and roses. But we understand that the gospel story, the Christmas story, is imminent hope. It is imminent good news. But it's drive through the tension of suffering and pain. Right? It's drive through, driven through suffering and pain. Life is hard. There are seasons of fallow ground. There are seasons of want and desire. And we as Christians acknowledge there is much that we long for that we don't have in hand. And we're looking to God to supply and bring those things to us. And we're hoping upon hope that all of his promises that he promises to us will happen and will, incur, will, will come about in his time and in his season. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the Christmas story and wonder maybe together, what opportunity does hope present? What opportunity does hope present? And our big idea this morning is going to be this. The hope of the Christmas season prepares you today for future joy to come. The hope of the Christmas season prepares you today for future joy to come. This future joy is eminent. God has promises, promised it to his people. Our history is secure, and it's in front of us. And yet, and yet, we do need hope because there are seasons that are difficult. There are challenges. There is pain. There is suffering. There's much that we long for that is not fulfilled in this world or in this lifetime. And so when we talk about Advent, right, like we talk about this is the, you know, this is the season of the birth of Jesus, right? When we say the coming of Christ, real quick, like, we're not just talking about what happened just about 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about just the fact that Jesus was born as a baby. And that is important, okay? And we've been speaking to that and preaching to that. We do every single year. I'm sure we will address it on Christmas Eve. But we talk about not just his first coming. We talk about the fact that he has promised to come again. And when the Scriptures promise us that the Messiah is going to come, like, it's in his fullness that he's going to deliver the kingdom and his people in its entirety and in its fullness. The first coming of Jesus, the birth, is the first installment of that. But in some ways, you could even say that it's just a shadow. It's just a, a taste. It's an appetizer to the fuller meal and the fuller celebration that is to come when Jesus arrives again. And that's the future hope that we're going to take a look at in the scriptures. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two different passages in Malachi and Zechariah. And both of these prophets, if you read their books, um, both of these prophets speak to both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And we're going to take a look at what they have to say about the second coming of Christ, what that day is going to look like, 
and why it is that we would cast our hope to that final day, what it's going to be like, and why it is that we would cast our, our, our eyes, our imagination to that final day, that we might then understand how we are to live today. All right, that's, that's the rest of our time this morning. So Malachi chapter 4 is the first passage we're going to take a look at. This is actually kind of fun because I, I preached on Malachi chapters 1 through 3 actually this summer. I didn't have enough time to get to 4, and uh, uh, now I get to do 4, so this is great. Um, all right, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We have to get the tone right. We have to get the mood right. When Jesus first came, he said what? He said, I, came, I come in grace and truth. The second coming of Christ is going to be different. It will not feel the same. It, is not, it, it will not be the same. The second coming of Christ is a matter of justice and fulfillment, judgment and fulfillment, that God is going to come, or Jesus is going to come, and all that is wrong, all that is evil, all that is opposed to his kingdom and his will and his way, it will be eradicated. It will be annihilated. And that's what Malachi speaks to here. The, the justice portion of God's second coming in that day of judgment. If we hear the words here, right, I mean, like, he says it'll be stubble. We can imagine here, right, like um, World War II. Maybe you've seen pictures of World War II decimated cities in Europe where these beautiful cathedrals are kind of laid waste and are but a pile of rocks. We've seen pictures like that. We might think of uh, 9-11 and the World Trade Centers, these massive structures being brought down to the ground. We could think of like a wildfire, a wildfire in the forest that burns everything in its wake, in its, uh, in its path. And what was green and lush and gorgeous is now ash and burnt wood. And what God says here is that it will be so decimated, there is neither root nor seed, nothing's gonna grow back, right? Like when there's a wildfire like that goes through like a forest, like, you know, then you kind of time lapse on like the YouTube video, right? And uh, all of a sudden like it, you know, green new stuff grows up. But God says that's not gonna happen because he's gonna annihilate all that is evil, all that is arrogant, all that is opposed to him. There is justice on the day of judgment. God will lay waste to all that who is opposed to him. That is part of the second coming. The other part of the second coming is fulfillment. That for those of us who have our hope in God and Jesus, that that final day when his kingdom comes in its fullness, it'll be a day of joy. And he uses kind of two images here. Son of righteousness, we'll talk about that here in a second, and leaping like calves, okay? And what we got to understand here real quick, the Bible is, has a lot of imagery in it. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we like are bored. The myrtle, 
the myrtle tree, you know, my coming will be like the cypress on the, you know, like we read it just as words rather than grabbing a hold of the fact that like God is trying to actually produce images in our minds and in our hearts that it might capture our imagination, it might capture our hearts. And we just kind of are bored because it's like not in video form. But, but honestly, like the words here, like give us a picture of what that day is going to be like that we might look forward to it and we might even long for it. He wants us to long for it. And so the first is the son of righteousness. And uh, the image is this right here, that this was a common image in the ancient Near East, the sun with wings. This wasn't unique to the scriptures. It's not unique to Israel. You can see this in uh, Babylonian architecture, Egyptian architecture, writings, uh, uh, drawings, all kinds of stuff like that. So what this image really meant was this, this idea of royalty, of kingship that would come in and this new rulership would bring with it its, its light and its, its healing and its abundance. Okay, that's, that's the image here. And so, hey, you know, new Caesar or whatever, new king, rolls in, he overtakes new lands, you know, he thinks much of himself, I'm now going to make you prosperous, right? And so this is kind of the imagery here. Well, what does God do? He uses the same imagery that the culture used to say, no, I am the son. I'm sending my son, and on, in that son are, what, wings of healing, all right? Jesus with a first aid kit or something like that, right? Like he's coming to to heal every wound, heal every ache, every heartache, every grief, uh, every fear. And so for us, like there's this great hope, this longing of man. You know, when we think about our year, right, we can think of those things that there's failure. We can think of those things that have brought us pain, those things that have confused us, those places where we felt lost, where we felt hurt, betrayed. And what the Lord says is while you feel this way like now, there's this imminent hope that when I arrive on this final day, yes, for those who are opposed to me, they'll be annihilated. But for you who have your hope in me, man, my healing is going to rush in. And immediately, your whole state of being, your whole uh, um, um, emotional, physical, spiritual state will be completely healed, will be completely whole. And then he says, how are you going to feel? Well, you're going to feel like a cow that is jumping up and down for joy. Uh, I don't own any cows. I know that there's some in here that even own cows. I have heard from people, I have a close friend who actually grew up working on a, uh, uh, down in central Ohio, grew up working on a, a cow farm. And uh, I remember him telling me once, he's like, Nick, it is so funny when a cow gets released, like gets out of the, the pen, because they just are so happy, they just start jumping up and down. You can ma imagine this massive animal, you know, Normally a docile animal, just this massive animal just jumping up and down for joy. It looks like this, um, you know. And I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that the Lord would use this imagery, right? To, but it would make your heart glad to watch this, right? You like watching cat videos and dog videos because they lighten your mood, right? They lighten your heart. Uh, YouTube cows jumping sometime this week. It will immediately make you just feel so much better about yourself. And what the Lord says is that on this day, all that is wrong will be righted, all that is hurt will be healed, and how will you feel? You're going to be like this massive land animal just jumping up and down for joy is how you're going to feel. You're going to somehow get your whole huge body off the ground, right? All four legs, all that kind of stuff. 
Now, I love this. This is not boring. This is exciting. And for us, as we read the scriptures, we think about the second coming of Jesus, we should in some ways be anticipating, be excited for when this day comes. You know, I don't know about you guys, but like I've got some kids, and if you ask them what are they looking forward to, what are they looking forward to? Christmas Day, right? They're looking forward to Christmas Day when they get to open the gifts, right? They get to receive the abundance from their parents or their grandparents, actually really more grandparents and parents, right? Um, They get to receive the abundance, right? And they are just excited, overjoyed, right? And the Lord says, hey, when I come again, when I come again, like your excitement, your anticipation is going to be fulfilled. All right, well, it doesn't just stop there. There's more. I want to show you another passage in Zechariah. And we're actually going to read from the message version because I just think the the language in in this translation just makes it a little bit easier to grab a hold of. So here's what Zechariah says. Now, again, previously, this is Zechariah 14. Previously in Zechariah, he's already addressed the first coming of Jesus, all right? Now he's talking about the final day. He says, on this final day, all the survivors from the godless nations that fought against Jerusalem will travel to Jerusalem every year to worship the king, God of the angel armies, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. If any of these survivors fail to make the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship the king, God of the angel armies, there will be no rain. If the Egyptians don't make the pilgrimage and worship, there will be no rain for them. Every nation that does not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths will be hit with the plague. Egypt and, other, uh, and other, any other nation that does not make pilgrimage to celebrate the Feast of Booths will get punished. On that day, the big day, all the horses' harnesses' bells will be inscribed holy to God. The cooking pots in the temple of God will be as sacred as chalices and plates on the altar. In fact, all the pots and all the pans and all the kitchens of Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to God of the angel armies. People who worship preparing meals and sacrifices will use them. On that day, there will be no buying or selling in the temple of God of angel armies. All right, so what's going on here? Zechariah is describing utopia. He is describing utopia. We have read books about utopia, right? We have a mind of what the ideal state would be. And Zechariah is saying this is the ideal state. First, he says there is this merging between that which is sacred and that which is secular. That which is sacred, that which is set apart by God, that which is righteous and that which is common and that which is ordinary will actually merge and be the same. He says, the cooking pot. All of us have this right here in our kitchen. We have a cooking pot. And the Bible says every ordinary item in your house for cooking will be used for its God-given purpose. It will have its place in the kingdom of God. It will not just be a thing. It will be a thing with real meaning or purpose, and it will be put to use for its purposes for the glory of God. Every common, I don't know, basketball that you have or cornhole set, whatever, like every stool you own, every common thing will be used for its purpose. God says there will be a grand merger of that which is sacred and that which is secular. All that is ordinary will find its place in God's kingdom. And then he says, two, he says, all, he says those who are godless, who are, so those who are previously opposed to God and his will, those who are godless, will turn. And those who were enemies will now become part of the family of God. And then he says, they're all going to come and celebrate the Feast of Booze. What is the Feast of Booze? 
you can Google it. I'm not going to go too much into it. But what you do need to know is that it was the largest, most inclusive celebration of the people of Israel at that time. It would be like celebrating New Year's. That's what it would be like. Everyone, not everyone celebrates Christmas. Not everyone celebrates Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever. Like, everyone celebrates New Year's. You know, we go to New York, right? This is where all people, like, are gathered, right? Or those of us who watch it on TV, you're gathered on your screen set watching that, right? Everyone's got their Planet Fitness purple hats from now on, right? So, so what God is saying is that everyone that wants to be part of the celebration of God will come. And they will experience the abundance of the feast and the celebration, it will be everybody who wants to come. All are welcome. I mean, this is as wide of an invitation as is humanly possible. However, those who say, he says Egyptians here, he says those who don't want to celebrate, well, they just don't experience the abundance from God. Those who don't want to participate, well, then they just won't be a part of the, they won't experience a blessing of the celebration is what he says. They've excluded themselves. That makes sense, right? But this is the imagery, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not at the place where all of God's people from all around the world, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language are yet gathered in a central location worshiping the Lord, but that day will come. This church certainly cannot fill all that is intended to be there. Bowling Green can't. It's going to be massive, and it's going to be awesome. This is the second coming of Christ. There's a lot more that the scriptures have to say. Oftentimes, I think we maybe are hesitant to think about the second coming of Christ, sometimes because of maybe some bad imagery or even just bad theology that gets too narrow. I don't think the scriptures, and even Jesus says, we shouldn't get so narrowly focused of when is that day. It could be sometime this year. It could be in the next hundred years. We're, we, we aren't told. But where the Bible does speak to it, it does give us a grand, awesome picture of what we should be anticipating and what we should be excited about on that day when this imminent hope finally arrives. So what do we do? Well, Jesus speaks to it in Matthew 25. So right in the middle of his own teaching on his second coming, find in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, he shares a parable with those who are listening of what they should do. The parable goes like this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps. I mean, that's an image, 10 virgins. Uh, and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is a bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins who rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be not enough for us and for you, you go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were all going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him, with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour." So Jesus in this parable gives us an image of five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Like the unwise ones, while they both slept, while they both are in this intermediate state of waiting, all right, they're waiting, five were foolish because they weren't prepared. 
Five are foolish because they live for the moment. Five are foolish because they live for the day. Five are foolish because they were, had their eyes set on what they could do in this moment to make themselves happy and content. And five, while they too also were waiting, they had their eyes set on that future day when the groom would finally show up. They had their hopes in that future day when the groom showed up and they would be ready to engage in what they longed for, which was be finally united to their groom and be able to participate in that, that feast. Uh, just last weekend, I got to marry two young adults, all right, in their 20s, all right, both were virgins, meaning both had waited for this day that they would finally be able to give their whole self, their physical self, their spiritual self, all right, their emotional self to the other person in holy matrimony. And we know, right, we know that those who have waited are able to therefore receive the other in their fullness and are able to give themselves in their fullness because they, they waited. We know what this is like when it comes to food. Like, when you have like that special birthday meal and you're like, I know I get to go to this fancy restaurant and I get to dress in a way that I don't normally dress and eat food that I don't normally eat, right? And you look forward to this occasion. You look forward to this meal. You think about it. You prepare for it. And what you don't do on that day is eat silly calories. You don't eat a whole bunch of bread before you go to the fancy meal. And when you're in the office, you don't nibble at the M&Ms this day like you might other days because you don't want to ruin the meal. You don't want to taint it, right? You want to go with a stomach that's ready to eat the meal. And what God says, what Jesus is saying is that in our hearts, with our eyes set on the future of his second coming, we should be in this place of preparedness, readiness, excitement to receive his kingdom. We should be prepared. We should be ready. Our eyes should be fixed on that day and that time. So how do we do this? Well, preparation, I think, is a matter, it's some combination of, of freedom and purity. Freedom and purity. And we'll address it here in this Christmas season, but I think it obviously extends beyond this Christmas season as well. One, there's freedom. Number one, uh, we, we don't have to be overly intimidated by, you could say, the spirit of the age. We don't have to be overly enthralled with the indulgences today. What do I mean? Like, when you go to Disney World, what do they say? Disney World is the most magical place on earth. Don't we say, we say that, right? We've, right? We've, I've been there, right? The, Disney World is the most magical place on earth. No, there's nothing magical about Disney. They're just really good at entertaining you. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with going to Disney World. There's no inherent evil with going to Disney World or having fun there or seeing the characters or anything like that, right? But there's nothing magical about it. It's not magical. They're just really, really, really good at like what they do. And what do we say about Christmas? It's the spirit of Christmas. That there's this spirit in the air that somehow... Hot chocolate in this month tastes better than the hot chocolate next month or something like that. The candy cane this month's month makes sense, but next month it doesn't. And so there's this idea that there's a magic about this season. There's no magic about this season. There's nothing magical about it. It can be fun, but we don't have to buy into the magic. We don't have to make more of it than what it is. It is fun, right? It is fun, 
but it's not magical. It's not spiritual. It doesn't hold the keys to the kingdom and God's promises in this age. And some of us struggle with this. I'm not saying all. Some of us struggle to feel free to be part of the season, be part of what's going on around our culture because we feel like we're not honoring Christ. We're not honoring that kingdom when we participate in it. Well, just because other people call it something that it's not doesn't mean just because we participate in it, like having trees on the stage, that doesn't mean that we in the same way give it the same sort of validity. Because we say, no, that's not the real thing. This is just fun. This is just play, you know, play, fun, and joy. But it has no real keys to our eternal happiness and hope because our eyes are set to that day. So there's a real freedom here. But then also there's a real purity. And when I say purity, I don't mean like you making yourselves pure. When the scriptures talk about purity, what they talk about is focus. That like your eyes are set on that final day, like that, that final hope. That means that you don't squander the future for today. It means that you don't get so enthralled with today that you lose sight of the future. It means that you don't have so much of your hopes and desires wrapped up in this moment that you forget that really what your heart longs for is a greater moment, a greater time that's ahead. Uh, Milton uh, Vincent says this. He says, the mere hope of seeing Christ in glory releases the purifying influence of heaven upon my life from day to day. The hope of seeing Christ in glory, his fullness, when he fully arrives, releases what purifying, focus, prepared, purpose, its influence of heaven upon my life from day to day. It means that all that we do, even using common cooking pots, reminds us of our future state of when all of this stuff will come to its actual realized reality in its final place. I want to read as a wave illustration a pastor by Anad Amahadevan. He is a pastor in Mumbai. He says this about the movie Avatar. So again, we're kind of still in this creative, imaginative state. And I'll say one other final thing after I read this. Um, he says this about the movie Avatar. When he watches Avatar, it, it puts his eyes, he uses Avatar as a way of putting his eyes and his heart on that future state, that second kingdom, that final kingdom when Jesus will, will come. He says this, he says, I realize that I am longing for the Avatar experience again, because he, he's looking forward to the second releasing of Avatar, which I guess happened this weekend, because I, I've watched it, right? No, I haven't. Um, I long for my senses to be enthralled to their fullest capacities. I want my mind to be carpet bombed by wonders of new worlds I had never imagined before. New colors, new creatures, new flights, new dives, new harmony, new wonders, new thrills, and new worlds. I long for these primarily because this broken world is not beautiful enough, not that it's not beautiful, this world is not beautiful enough to stretch my imagination and enrapture all of my senses to the fullest capacity. I sure, it sure feels like I've been given faculties that this broken world cannot fill. Even an avatar-like spectacle just about teases the surface of what I long to behold. And maybe Christmas teases the surface of what we long to behold. He goes on, he says, I cannot, think of the uh, I cannot but think of the famous, perhaps overquoted C.S. Lewis saying, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
Spectacles like Avatar help me turn, help me turn my gaze to the second advent, the second coming. Christ shall come again. My Savior will, will usher me into a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sickness, shame, or death. My bridegroom, Messiah, will sweep me away from this brokenness and into a world of unimagined wonders. There, Christ himself will be the wonder of wonders, fulfilling every desire and filling every faculty with the infinite ecstasy of his presence. And maybe as we think about the hope of Christmas season, our, our big idea today, the hope of Christmas season preparing us for future joy, we think of this season and how maybe there is more generosity in the season, more gift giving, more merriment, but it doesn't stay here. It teases our senses that really what we would say is it, it will come and go. January 1st will hit, right? The next year comes. But really all it does is it reminds me that there's a day I long for when that merriment will not cease, when that day of joy and generosity will be to no end, when that day of bounty, unceasing love and intimacy with my Lord and Savior in his glory, in his majesty, that that's the day I long for. And while I get to celebrate it today, I do it mindful that it just is reminding me that what I really long for is more than this world can ever give me. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I just ask that there would be great freedom in your son Jesus upon us here at Covenant that we would be free to use our imaginations. God, that as we check our desires and evaluate our desires, that we would direct them to the longing of the day when we want all the world to be righted and in peace and rest as it should be. And when we will receive the bountiful inheritance that's promised in your son Jesus. I pray, God, even this week of celebration for us while we make merry with our friends and family, as we enjoy uh, reading your scriptures, as we enjoy time singing together, that really, God, our affection will be directed to the final day when you will come in all of your fullness. And Lord, would we not be so foolish as to squander these desires you've given us, thinking that this world, this world can even give us a, a taste of what you're really like. Would we not be satisfied with what we find here? But God, we set our affections, our desires, our longings on you until you come again. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.